Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. All right, Sunday School class, good morning. I would invite everyone to turn to Romans 1-1, and we'll get started. Okay, let us pray. Precious Lord, our Savior, Lord Jesus, divine spirit, we thank you for bringing us all together to commune, to fellowship, and to sit under your word as we all yield before you, asking you, divine spirit, to open our eyes and illuminate our minds that we may truly understand and appreciate your word. We are all natural human beings here today, not listening to a person. We, Divine Spirit, listening to your voice and ask you to remove the stumbling blocks from our ears, remove the cloudy scales amongst our eyes, and open the windows of understanding in our hearts that we may truly know your word and therein know you and therein live a life saturated and led and guided by your divine word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So Romans 1, chapter 1 to 3 says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Last time we ended, we talked about Romans 1-2, and we established the fact that the gospel is not new because it was promised beforehand by God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we ended with a collective question. And the question was, why did God choose to do it this way? Meaning, why did God promise the gospel way, 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 way back in time and then later on at a future date, millennia in the future, then fulfill the gospel promise with the revelation of his son? And I left everyone saying, there's an answer to that question found in the book of Galatians. Now, is there any brave soul who wishes to venture and give their answer as to why God did it this way? What is time? Yes, nailed it. The answer to the question is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So in answering the question, why did God choose to make a gospel promise way back in the Garden of Eden and then wait 4,000 years and then decide to send forth his son, the biblical answer is because God was waiting for the fullness of time. Now, let's unpack that and explore that idea. The answers I'm about to give you are not exhaustive, meaning 
The Bible tells us God waited, waiting for the fullness of time, but the Bible does not specify exactly what that means. What we can now do is use the answer in Galatians 4, then search the scriptures and formulate a reasonable answer. So these three reasons are not the only three, they're just what the Bible tells us. So God waited for the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, we have number one, a fullness of prophecy. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, all throughout the Old Testament, God's prophets prophesy, or they, well, not they, but through God's revelation, are looking down the corridor of time saying, a Messiah is coming, a Messiah is coming, a Messiah is coming. And in those prophecies, they are specific to the Messiah that would come. So what God is doing, being in charge and sovereign over time, he's basically raising up prophets that tell the world a Messiah is coming. God then fulfills that promise in the future, proving what? that he is God, that God's word is reliable, and the author of that word is in charge of all of reality because God makes the prophecy before the event happens, in some cases hundreds and hundreds of years, and then that prophecy comes to pass. So the fullness of time pertains to a fullness of prophecy. And if, personally speaking now, when God makes a prophecy hundreds of years in the past and then fulfills it, that now actually bears more weight than a sign or wonder. Why? If God were to do a sign or wonder right here, right now, that's an event that happens acutely in the present. It's something miraculous and marvelous now. But when God, for example, through David, when he sees in the future, <laughs> And he makes the prediction that the Messiah would be crucified 700 years before crucifixion existed. That's a marvelous, awe-inspiring sign or wonder which transcends something in the present. So God allowed the fullness of time to develop to show to us the fullness of prophecy. There's a famous experiment by a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner. And what he did is he gathered a bunch of students and he calculated the odds of eight by just eight. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ. But he and his students calculated the possibility of just eight prophecies in the Old Testament pointing forward to one person. And when I say that the Old Testament has hundreds of prophecies about Christ, we're talking about prophecies like that Jesus will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11:13, that he would have his hands and feet pierced, Psalm 22:16, that people would cast lots for his clothing, Psalm 22:18, and that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5:2. So Professor Stoner says, what would be the odds of just eight prophecies, just eight, all being fulfilled in one person? The odds he calculated that to be 
is one in 10 to the 21st power. That is one with 21 zeros ahead of it. Now let's just try to contextualize how astronomically improbable that is. Odds of one in 10 to the 21st power means that you're standing on Pluto, which is billions and billions and billions of light years away. You're blindfolded and your back is facing the Earth. The odds of 1 to 10 and 21 is that you're blindfolded, back facing the Earth, you then throw a dart in the wrong direction, and that dart now lands on the top of a penny, which is on top of the Empire State Building, and hits the president in the eye. <laughs> odds just transcend understanding. So what is the point of telling you that? The point of telling you that is that if those are the odds of just eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person, when now hundreds of prophecies are fulfilled in one person, the only thing that can explain that is if God is behind it all along. God waited to reveal his son in the fullness of time to develop a fullness of prophecy. There's another reason. Who can think of another reason? Just think. Old Testament, hundreds of years, Israel, 400 years of silence, then Jesus comes. What could God possibly be trying to show or tell us in waiting all that time? Fullness of sin. What do I mean by that? In the Old Testament, you basically have a people, God's chosen people, the, the, the Israelites, that God sets apart. And what God does is he basically says, okay, everybody, in order to get saved, all you have to do is just fulfill this law. And what does Old Testament history tell us? That people couldn't keep the law over and over. Even the really good ones couldn't keep the law. So what was God revealing to us in time? that even if you try to live a life based on works, even if you try to fulfill rules and mandates, you will never make it to heaven. Because the people who failed to keep the law were the Israelites. They were God's chosen people set apart by him who were protected. But even they could not fulfill the law. God was showing us in the fullness of time, revealing to us that we need a gospel because a way of salvation predicated on works only leads to dis dis disappointment. And the reason why is because the depravity in our hearts, because of the sinful nature that we have, and a sinner can never save themselves by doing because what comes out of them is sinful. But even more than that, what God was showing us in the 4,000 plus years between him promising the Messiah and the Messiah coming is what? That man was incapable of saving himself. You had empire after empire, the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians, all these mighty forces who controlled large swaths of people and land, but despite all their power, despite all their philosophy, despite all their education, 
No one created a paradise on earth. God was showing us that we were totally and completely incapable of saving ourselves because of sin. Hence, God was showing us in the fullness of time that humanity is in desperate need of a savior. That's why when Jesus came, the gospel truly was good news. And even on top of that, in the fullness of time, what we see over and over and over and over and over again, that the same problems that were plaguing people when the gospel was first promised were the same problems plaguing people in Jesus' day, which are the same problems plaguing people now. Human, human nature is not changing, which is why we need a universal savior for all humankind. Yes? Um, in, in, I think Galatians, uh, Galatians 3, does he talk about that? He talks about how the law, how basically, yeah, we, we can't just live by the law alone because it, it, it fails. And I, I think the Cashmore verse where he says that, uh, it, you know, God he basically says that, you know, if, if, if it was just the law, then you know, men would have written a law detailing righteousness. And that way, if, if, all there was, if, if the law was the law and, and the end all be all, then we would get righteousness, you know, immortality through the law. But he, he was explaining how that's not the case. So that's why men and the law would ultimately always fail each other. Right. So your question basically is, doesn't Paul in the, uh, in the New Testament in general point to um, the... The, the law's lack of power to save people and, your, and the response is you're absolutely correct. The purpose of the law, it was not ill and void in and of itself because we're going to get to this a little bit later. The law essentially revealed to us God's righteousness and what is right and what's wrong. But in general, when we zoom out, the law's purpose was always a tutor that led us to Christ because it was far out of any human being's ability to obey the law because the problem is not a man performing things that are given to him on the outside. It's because his heart is warped. It's because he needs a deep-seated inward change, which now gives him the power to actually obey the law. And that change of heart, that regeneration, is, uh, reach, reaches its fulfillment when Jesus Christ dies pays the penalty for sin, liberates us from the power of sin reigning in our lives. So now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now actually do what is pleasing to God and do all of his commandments. So that's the second reason. Why did God wait fullness of time? Number one is fullness of prophecy. Number two is to show us that we absolutely need a savior. The third reason is the fullness of means. Now, what do I mean when I say fullness of means? God is a God of means. He uses natural routes. He uses natural situations. He uses natural circumstances in order to fulfill his will. When we zoom out and we ask, at what time in human history did Jesus arrive on the scene? He arrived on the scene when most people in the known Medita Mediterranean world then spoke a common language, and that language was Koine Greek. And that's important because 
when the original apostles and evangelists went out and they spoke Koine Greek, they could now relay and communicate the gospel to a people who actually could understand what they were talking about. So God used the means of time and waited until a point when people in general had a common language so the gospel could be proclaimed and understood. On top of that now, God also waited through the means of the Romans essentially building and connecting the world with trade routes and roads and an already established system so that when people went out to spread the gospel, they would know where cities were, there were roads to travel there, and there were already shipping routes established to bring the gospel from one place to the other. So why did God wait? Why did he promise the gospel and then fulfill it? Because he was waiting on the fullness of time. And again, the three answers we just discussed are not all inclusive. They just give us some insight into God waited. Ultimately, to get all the answers, we'll have to ask God in paradise because that's an answer that only rests fully in the mind of God. So the gospel was promised in the Old Testament and what the New Testament now does is it fulfills the Old Testament promises, it fulfills the Old Testament covenant, but it does not abolish it. Now the question was asked concerning the law. And this is crucially, it's critically important to understand. When we began talking about the gospel, we began with the law, which exposed the sin problem. Now that we know what the gospel is, we're now going to go back to the law, because the gospel in the New Testament does not nullify or make void the law. What do I mean by that? The law is now perceived in a unique way considering the gospel, because God's grace as revealed in the gospel, never negates God's objective standard of righteousness as revealed in the law. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, quote, salvation is something that fulfills the law, it does not make it void, end quote. So now, now that we are members of the new covenant, now that Christ has public ministry, he lived, he died, and he rose again. When we now look back at the law, and when I say law, I mean the moral law as revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. When we now, believing in Christ as our Savior, and look back on the law, the law is not useless. The law is not something that we throw in the garbage. The law is given to us by God, and it therefore still has value. It is not void. So now that we know what the gospel is, that we are not saved by works, but by faith in Christ, how do we now use the law? And there are three ways. Classically speaking, there are three classical uses of the law. The law, number one, reveals the righteousness of God. Because God being a God who is righteous, he reveals the law and therefore tells us what is right. He tells us what we should be doing. And in God revealing his righteousness, we also know what is wrong and therefore what we shouldn't do. So the first use of the law is that it reveals the righteousness of God. The second use of the law 
is that it restrains evil. Because when we now know what is wrong, and we now know that God says, thou shall not, what does a reasonable person now say? I'm not going to do it. And therefore, there's a restraint of evil placed on our consciousness. And then back in Moses' days, the, God's law also prescribed certain civil penalties for breaking the law, like stoning for blasphemy. That in and of itself was a restraint on evil. So use of law number one reveals God's righteousness. Use of law number two, it restrains evil. Here's the most important use of the law, now that we're in the, the new covenant. God's moral law guides believers in what we ought to do now in order to please God. Let's say it again. God's moral law now leads and guides believers into what we ought to do to please God. In the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go into the world and teach everyone everything I've commanded you, what God commanded us is included in his moral law, the thou shouts and the thou shall not. But here's the difference now. When we now look back on the law and realize that a righteous God revealed a righteous law, we don't look at the law and now say, I have to do these things to impress God. No. We don't look at the law and say, if I break a commandment, I'm going to hell forever. No. We look at the law and having a new heart and new mind, we ask ourselves, we love God. We trust Jesus. We realize that salvation is free, but it's not cheap. How do we serve our master? How do we make our walk and our reflection to the world at large, Christ exalting and God glorifying? And the answer can be found in God's moral law. So when we now read the Ten Commandments, Honor your mother and father. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't steal. Don't lie. Those are fantastic rules for life, which are as applicable then as they are now. In fact, if all of humanity simply started using the Ten Commandments as a rule for life in general, the world will get better overnight. Because now men and women are acting in accordance with God's moral law. So the law is something now that we look back on, delighting in, knowing that we're not going to earn or increase our setting with God by obeying, but now uh, through what Jesus Christ has done, the Holy Spirit now empowers us to actually obey the law. Now that's critically important to understand because Jesus says, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. That means everything God taught in the New Testament and the Old. Now, there's a dirty L word in Christianity. And the dirty L word is legalism. People hear that and they run. They say, oh, don't want to be a legalist. Don't want to be too biblical. They don't like that moniker. And many people actually use that word legalism, but don't actually know what it actually means. Legalism does not mean obeying the Word of God. Obeying the Word of God is obedience. If God says, thou shalt, then you shalt. 
if God says thou shalt not, then you shouldn't. That's not being a legalist. That means you're Christian. Legalism does not mean delighting and obeying in God's moral law, knowing you're not doing these things to say, look at me, look at how well I'm performed. You're doing these things out of a love and delight for God. The appropriate definition of legalism is this. Legalism is when someone makes up a rule that God never commanded. And the purpose why someone makes up a rule is so that they can feel better about their performance. That's what legalism is. So, for example, if, if I meet someone and someone tells a lie, and I immediately rebuke them and say, God's word says you shall not bear false witness. That means I'm being biblical. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's not being a legalist, right? Legalism is, is I'll give you an example of what legalism is. Legalism is someone saying everyone in this church has to wear a suit on Sunday. God's word never says that. Legalism says you have to dress a certain way or say certain words to be saved. God's word does not say that. Legalism says unless you homeschool your children, you are not saved. God's word never says that. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now that we know we can never do better than what God has already done through his son, we now look back on his word and say, how can I obey and walk in God's prescribed ways better and better so I, my life will not only exalt God more, but I will be a better reflection of Christ to those around me. And of course, I say all that to say, no one now obeys based on their own power. We all obey based on God through the Holy Spirit working in and through us. So that, as someone grows in their Christian life, their desire and their ability to obey God increases because they, they take steps closer and closer and closer and have a greater intimacy with their maker. So a godly man, a godly woman in the 21st century is always searching scriptures, allowing God's word to reform, to transform, and to mold who they are and how they act in closer and closer alignment with what God has revealed. Okay, so we'll stop there for today before we dive into Romans 1 chapter 3 starting uh, next week. Yes, we have a question. Right, so if I were to summarize your comment, your comment was that God um, always used his prophets to speak and proclaim his word in order to turn the people back to his truth. Fair summary? To, to help and guide people into God's will, which is um, completely correct because God as a God of means always uses people to rehearse and pronounce his word so people always remember and never forget. Because guess what? The devil uses people too. 
The devil uses men, the devil uses women to preach a false gospel and to preach lies. And usually, what the devil likes to do is he'll raise up his own prophets who tell people what they want to hear. And they say, I want to listen to this guy. And now everyone flocks to him, but now God's faithful prophets are always the ones who say this is what the word says, the word, the word, the word, the word, the word, in order to draw people back to what God's truth actually says. It's a story that's been playing out since the beginning of time, because I think it was Martin Luther who once said, if God raises up and builds a church in one spot, what the devil will do is build an unholy tabernacle right next door that's bigger, that's prettier, and that's more appealing. That's the way it always works. So the, the, the prophetic example is always to preach and teach the truth so people remember and they don't stray. Because human beings by nature, as the history of time reveals, we love to be deluded and people by our... Every human being has the potential inside of themselves to be the worst devil possible. And what brings us back and draws us back is the truth of God's word. No more questions? I think you said this a while ago. No one nowadays can call themselves a prophet anymore, right? Right. Th that's actually a very good question. I was thinking that as I was saying the word. When I say prophet now, I'm simply referring to someone who speaks God's truth. The office of prophet has been closed for thousands of years. The office, like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, these are, these are, were men called to a particular office. So when they spoke, those were actually the inerrant, infallible words of God that can now be put in the Bible. But when someone acts as a prophet now, they're not acting in the office of prophet. They're simply communicating what God has already revealed. Because remember, back in Jeremiah's time, for example, what the people did not have is the book of Jeremiah. So when God uses Jeremiah to, to proclaim his words, those words are inspired by God. And because he held the office of prophet, those words would be ever be recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture. All the words I said today will never belong in this book. Every word I've said today came from this book because this is God's word. I'm just merely communicating it to people so they can understand. No new revelations from me. Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for marvelously revealing your truth to us in promising the gospel beforehand and then waiting for the fullness of time to develop to reveal not only your nature and your character but the inherent sinfulness of man and why we are in desperate, absolute need of a savior and hence the gospel, the good news. We thank you, O Lord, for your truth and we continue to pray at the end of each and every Sunday school lesson that you lead us and guide us and deposit your truth deep within our hearts that it will grow a tree that will always be fruitful, yielding fruit of love, light, truth, and illumination, that we will not only understand you better, but understand ourselves better, and thus be able to relay your glorious and marvelous truth to all those we encounter. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.